law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 117 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, April 19th, 2023. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Allison, we've got a ton to cover today. You know, I feel like I say that every week, but it's just the nature <laughs> of Trump's crime. But uh, today we've got a lawsuit found by Alvin Bragg against Jim Jordan in the embarrassing flop, predictable embarrassing flop of a field hearing on crime in New York City. We have multiple bids for a delay in the E.G. and Carroll case, which is still slated to begin on April 25th, potential settlement talks between Fox and Dominion, and a Trump deposition in the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case. But first, we want to thank our new patrons. Yeah, absolutely. You can sign up for as little as a dollar an episode. You support the entire show. You'll get these episodes ad-free, and uh, we'll read whatever name you choose. <laughs> we'll read it here on the show. There's also other perks, like you get first dibs on the tickets to our cocktail reception in D.C. later this month. I can't wait, Allison. It's going to be so, so fun. Uh, and uh, the details will be, you know, in your email as a pa as a patron. But here's a shout out to our new patrons this week. We have Jennifer Schmidt, Andrea Redeman, Mark Sakura, Sarah Lynn, Liz Johnson, Karen Ellingson, Carolyn Casey, Stuart Little, L-I-D-D-L-E, Melissa Dart, M. Lehman, Susan Bowman, D. Gingell, Matthew Ackerman, Sharon Schwayman, uh, Francesca in San Francisco, Anne S., Margaret Garrigan, Anne DeGroote, M.D., awesome, we have a doctor in the house, Mark Kummer, and Jared Ratoff. And pardon me if I mispronounced any of those. Uh, you can sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. You can put in whatever you want as your name. We'll read it on the air. All right, Pete. Let's talk about E. Jean Carroll's case. Let's do it. Lots of motions and letters have been sent and motions have been filed by Joey Taco and um, Joe, Joe, Joey Tacos, right? It's Taco Pina. Uh, in, yeah. Just in the past week, trying to delay this trial, right? And this guy is, again, straight out of central casting, right? He's, he's the chumba wumba of law. He gets knocked down. He gets back up again. again <laughs> yes, again, shout out to again. Lisa Rubin. And again, yeah, that was a fantastic tweet. That's, uh, <laughs> For that well tweet, well because he just- I, I appreciated that. He just keeps trying. <laughs> uh, and he's also a sellout. Uh, I'm just kidding. Chumba wumba, I love you. Uh, crass, love you, Liberty Bell. All right, first, Joe Takapina sent a letter asking the judge to de delay the trial for a month to May 25th to allow for a quote-unquote cooling-off period following <laughs> the know, indictment. 
Can I, I, I got to interrupt you and I know we're already going long in this episode. You know what would create a cooling off period? If Trump would have stopped goddamn criming. There's so much crime. <laughs> if you want a cooling off period, how about this? Just follow the law for one brief period in your entire adult life. And maybe, maybe we wouldn't need the cooling off period that you're you're about to talk about here. Sorry about that. Yeah, a cooling that. off period following the indictment, arraignment and arrest of Donald Trump in New York. Right. And what's really fascinating to me and this, the judge didn't say this, but I know it had to be on his mind is like, all right, let's say I do delay this to May 25th for a cooling off period. You're going to be indicted between now and then on some other shit, and you'll just be back here asking for another cooling off period. But there are some things that the judge did bring up. Quote, holding this trial a mere... Well, this was first of all from Joey Taco's letter. Holding this trial a mere three weeks after these historic events will guarantee that many, if not most, of the prospective jurors will have the criminal allegations top of mind. Um, he also argued that it covers sexual misconduct, just like the E. Jean Carroll trial. Uh, the judge points out, no, that was consensual sex. The E. Jean Carroll case is not. Uh, and Joey Taco said, Google searches on Trump crimes increased because of the arrest that happened that week. And there's a huge media circus that will no doubt taint prospective jurors. Well, Judge Kaplan ruled on the matter, <laughs> saying there's no justification for an adjournment. Although there was a great deal of media coverage of the expected New York charges and then of the indictment uh, and Mr. Trump's arraignment, Mr. Trump's argument breaks down at every subsequent step. Uh, it bears emphasis that at least some portion of the recent media coverage for Mr. Trump's indictment was of his own doing. And it does not sit well for Mr. Trump to promote pretrial publicity and then claim that coverage that he promoted was prejudicial, prejudicial to him and should be taken into account as supporting a further delay. Next, so that got shot down. Next up, based on that media circus caused by the former president's arrest, Takapina filed a motion for a juror questionnaire. And Kaplan shot that down, you know, saying this was a clear attempt to get the names, addresses, and contact information of prospective jurors. That's what they wanted to put on the questionnaire, which Kaplan already denied when he anonymized the jury to protect them from Trump specifically. Then Takapina again tried to get the prospective jurors personal information by requesting he be present during the entire step, every step of the way during jury selection. Um, and, and we'll let you know the judge's response to that when we get it, but I have a feeling. <laughs> so the trial is scheduled to begin April 25th, but this reminds me just on a personal note you know, when I filed to uh, renew a restraining order against uh, a, an abusive ex who was found to admit to multiple felonies and found to have committed domestic violence uh, against me, in a, uh, what are those called, like, uh, those questions, you know, where you submit questions to the other side that they have to add in interrogatories, Interrogatories. He asked for my address, my current address, and my phone number. And so, and the judge is like, Fuck no, get the hell out. And then when they questioned me in the courtroom, they asked me where I was living and if I was still living. In the, and she's like, that's it. You're done. She, The judge herself objected several times on my behalf and said, you're done. And she gets her uh, renewal for a restraining order for the maximum amount of years allowed, which is five years in California. But it, it it's that kind of, you know, but just over and over again, asking for the names and the addresses of, because when they, when he anonymized the jury, uh, it was uh, Joey Takapino asking for, uh, hey, we want lists of the names of the prospective jurors, right? 
Uh, and he's like, no. And not only that, the juror is going to be anonymous. And then two more times he tried to file, well, he wrote letters, he didn't file motions to to get the, the names or be there when their names are read or to somehow get get their information, their contact information. And that's just blatant. And the judge saw right through it. You're just trying to intimidate these people. Yeah. You know, by far and away, that's the most concerning part of this whole sort of unfolding of events from my perspective. I mean, we can sit here and chuckle. Like as, as any party to a lawsuit, it is never good for a judge to write about you that it does not sit well for you to have done something or another. I mean, that's just nothing you ever, ever, ever want to have the court say about your client. And so, you know, to me, I think I would hope these attorneys are smart enough to understand they're not doing any anything whatsoever to get in the good graces of the court by doing this sort of nonsense, but certainly they're trying to play to Trump and his political aspirations and his fundraising aspirations. But what bothers me is is absolutely what you pointed out. I mean, some of these are just, you know, childish shenanigans. But when you start asking, this is not the third time that they've asked or tried to get through Sutterfuge the identities of the jurors. And the judge has already told him twice he's not going to change his mind. But it's clear that, you know, there there is no to have such a single minded focus on getting the identities of these jurors. I it 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 starts to be you know beyond beyond concerning. And and you start to wonder like, well, why is it that they feel they need to continue doing it? It it gives it this air of, it's already malevolent feeling, but this is, you know, the dark, dark malevolence that's, the the only reason is intimidation. The only reason is to say, you know, okay, it's clear that we're not going to get your names and identities from the court, but we want it to be crystal clear to all of you that we're trying everything we can to figure that out. So, you know, at some point, I'm curious to see if the judge start saying, look, there's a line. I've told you no twice. This has clearly moved into a different sort of environment and sanctions them. I don't think you will in, in, in this instance, but it's 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 beyond, you know, sort of gangster tactics. Yeah, it's creepy. It's creepy. It's like Credico's dog, right? With Roger Stone. I'm gonna oh you like that. Oh, that's a nice dog you got there. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> That whole thing that went down. What was the name of the dog? Little, little, I forget what the, I forget the dog's name. I'll look it up by the end of it. Little white puffball, right? Muffin or something. Uh, Now, what's the difference between an anonymized jury and a sequestered jury? Because I don't think that the judge has sequestered this jury. Has he? Yeah, he hasn't. I think my my understanding sequestration is largely what you're doing to cut off the jurors from their outside contact. So from talking to people who might talk about things that are going on in the news or we're saying, look, you can't go, you can't watch the news, listen to the radio, searching on the uh, internet. So sequestration, my understanding is it's designed to keep the juries, the information going into the mind of the jurors limited to that about for the case limited to what they're hearing in the courtroom versus this, which is designed to protect them and their safety and security because of outside forces that might seek to, you know, bribe them, intimidate them, coerce them, you know, somehow put undue and inappropriate illegal pressure on them. So I, which is, you know, they're both bad, but anytime, you know, they're the core sort of component of our judicial system is the idea of a jury of your peers and that they sit down and they objectively render, you know, judgment. And if you're, if they're being pressured by anybody on either side, that's just absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, true. And I'm assuming because of this, now with all of this ask and ask again and ask again, there's going to be a a microscope on this and, and what juror information the the Trump team has access to and, and they'll be watching. Uh, and, you know, this is happening with a lot of different Trump lawyers. We'll talk about this in a little bit. There's been 
sanctions. There's been um, talk of special masters being appointed uh, in the Fox Dominion case. I mean, it's just it's it's blatant. It happens over and over again. And to to upfront get on the bad side of the judge just seems bonkers to me. But I mean, I guess it's a scorched earth um, way to go. Right. And I, you know, whether that's a deliberate strategic decision or just sort of an incompetent aggressiveness, I don't know. I, you know, some of this is, you know, you could try and goad the judge into do, doing something that's rash or harsh that would set you up for appeal. Um, you know, maybe this is an attempt to so anger him that he does something that, you know, accrues to their favor later on. But it's certainly in a, in a short term, they're not, they're not going to change his mind. And if anything, it just you know, whatever little goodwill might exist, it just exhausts it before, you know, the very first potential juror walks in the door. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, that's what's going on in the E.G. and Carroll case. Again, the trial starts on April 25th. Um, you know, meanwhile, we have other trials starting this week that we'll talk about uh, a little bit uh, uh, later in the show. Um but we also have um, <laughs> the Jim Jordan Circus, the now traveling circus we're going to talk about as soon as we get back from this break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA, as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. This past week, Alvin Bragg took the rare step of filing suit against Jim Jordan and Mark Pomerantz 
to block current and future subpoenas of line prosecutors and even the district attorney himself. There are two main reasons Bragg seeks to enjoin Jim Jordan from interference in this prosecution of Donald Trump. First, the subpoena exceeds the committee's constitutional authority. States one, there is no legitimate legislative purpose for what Jim Jordan's doing. Second, that Congress has no power to conduct oversight into a state prosecution, or the legal term from Latin is ultra vira, saying they're exceeding their authority, that they don't have the authority to do it. And finally, that a subpoena Pomerantz is overly broad and unduly burdensome. And then, you know, keep in mind that, you know, part of the, the way I understand it is the fact that uh, it was brought against Mark Pomerantz was not so much to target Mark Pomerantz, but it was sort of a defensive maneuver to prevent Pomerantz from being subpoenaed. And the way to achieve that is is by naming him in the in the lawsuit. Now, the second main reason, it would violate grand jury secrecy and privilege, things like work product, uh, uh, attorney-client privilege, deliberative process privilege, uh, law enforcement privilege, informants privilege, and public interest privilege. The variety of these things that all go into the grand jury process and ultimately trial would be violated. You know, the necessary rules and regulations that surround those processes and all the, the sort of privileges that attach to them would be violated by them. This. Bragg asked the court, and again, this is in federal district court. This is not a New York state court or any sort of appellate New York court. This is federal district court. Bragg asked for the court to declare the subpoena unconstitutional and for an injunction or temporary restraining order. Now, the judge denied the injunction and, or, and or temporary restraining order and asked for both Jordan and Pomerantz to respond by April 17th, and we'll hold a hearing on it today as you're listening to it on April 19th. So, you know, importantly, this, while he he denied the injunction or TRO, it was still ordered to have argument prior to the time where this had been taken effect. So, you know, it could be th th there were not immediate harms suffered by lacking, by not getting this injunction or TRO, but it is moving quickly, you know, to get hopefully a decision out of the court before anything that would actually occur that would uh, interfere with what Bragg is doing. Then on top of all this, in the midst of all Jim Jordan, somebody again on Twitter said, you know, the, the mistake that Jordan made is, you know, Alvin, Alvin Bragg is bringing with this lawsuit, he's bringing a gun to a knife fight with Jim Jordan. But that, you know, the sort of hapless uh, ineptitude of Jim Jordan continued today on Monday as we're taping this <laughs> as he took his weaponization circus on the road, drove up, amtrak up, Greyhound bust up, however they got there to his first field hearing in New York City, or maybe it might have been the second. They might have gone down to the border, but that might have been a different committee. But Adam Schiff breaks it down here. Almost three weeks ago, Donald J. Trump was indicted by a grand jury in Manhattan on dozens of counts of fraud in connection with a hush money payment scheme in which his personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, previously went to jail. Since the former president's indictment, the Manhattan district attorney has been the subject of countless death threats and racist diatribes. Others have made ugly appeals to anti-Semitism in an effort to attack the proceedings. And this committee, this committee has used every means at its disposal to disrupt, interrupt, and interfere with the prosecution, demanding documents it has no right to obtain and no jurisdiction to demand, subpoenaing a former district attorney, deputy district attorney, and threatening to subpoena the DA himself, and now holding this hearing in Manhattan in a vain attempt to intimidate or embarrass the prosecutorial authority. Now, the majority denies that this is the purpose of today's hearing. They would have you believe it is a mere coincidence 
that all of a sudden and out of the blue, the chairman decided that the state of New York is a wonderful place to do a hearing. Not the chairman's home state of Ohio with its high rates of murder, but New York State. And of all the cities in New York, they would pick New York City. And of all the boroughs in New York, they pick Manhattan. Apparently, Manhattan is just lovely this time of year. What a remarkable coincidence we are meant to believe. Of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, we just happen to walk into this one. How absurd. Yeah, of all the gin joints and all the world. I love that <laughs> I love that he drags Casablanca into this and being like, what a coincidence. Of all places, we're here where Alvin Bragg has brought charges against the president and, you know, accusing Jim Jordan of, of being just basically, you know, of Trump and Jim Jordan conspiring to turn the House Republicans into a giant defense team, right? Legal defense team. Yeah. And, you know, the notoriety of Jordan's clown car is starting to catch up with him and nobody covered this. I mean, C-SPAN didn't cover it. That It's tough to get clips. I mean, you know, some of the folks like they were a little bit, you know, circulating with the the shift clip you just heard, Dan Goldman, there was something where he was uh, cross-examining to good effect one of the one of Jim Jordan's witnesses. But everybody's beginning to realize this is this is a whole lot of nonsense. And the sad part is, you know, it's not going to stop it from showing up on an occasional tweet out of the Judiciary Committee or maybe on Hannity or Newsmax or something. But it is going to end up being used for fundraising at a minimum by Trump. And, you know, the more then the most aggravating part it, like for me is the fact that, you know, we all as we sit down and, you know, we just finished up tax season. And as you sit there and you look at what you owe or how little your your return is, the reason part of it is so small or what you owe so large is going to finance nonsense like this. So, I, you know, again, from, from the standpoint of like being sort of ethical, reasonable, responsible custodians of the taxpayers and the, and the, the constituents they represent, this is just a complete waste of time and resources. And it, it went over about as well as everything else has for his committee. Yeah, Jim Jordan even had to throw out one of his own supporters. <laughs> <laughs> right. When and, and and who who would have thought a you know sort of a one of the few small percentage of New Yorkers that tend to be you know hard MAGA conservatives might be both disrespectful and not uh, you know respect the decorum of a you know congressional session on the road. But I think yeah, I saw that that somebody was was shouting as he was let out because he refused to uh, stop talking over, I think it was over some, it might've even been uh, Congressman it was Dan Adam Goldman, Schiff. but, oh, was it, it Schiff? It was Schiff okay. because, yeah, because he said something about Ralph Nader and then, and then said, I love you, Jim Jordan. And then Adam Schiff responded with, oh, we're rare defense for Ralph Nader. <laughs> it was yeah. just very, very the, interesting. Yeah, I saw the bit and I, I didn't watch all of it. I saw a little bit um, streaming online and there was something where Dan Goldman was trying. He was just talking and one of Jordan's witnesses started talking over him and Jordan had to break in and say, no, you know, my, my colleague, his time is going to be restored. We'll have order. You know, Oh, the lady. Yeah. The lady who was like, don't insult my intelligence. Right. Yes. She didn't get thrown out. It was not bad. You know, she disrupted well, she's it, a but didn't, didn't cross right. Didn't cross Jim Jordan's line. But, you know, you have a witness essentially trying to talk over um, Dan Goldman or Congressman Goldman. It got so bad that, you know, Jim Jordan himself had to shut down his own witness and restore time to the other side of the aisle. So, yeah, again, complete just flaming disaster, which we all expect and have seen now, you know, and it's whatever eighth week uh, going here. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, that, um, 
you know, you brought up a little bit earlier about Bragg suing Jim Jordan and including Mark Pomerantz as a as a defendant. I think a lot of that has to do also with, you know, one of Bragg's major arguments is that there's no legislative purpose here. However, and we have to remember, Jim Jordan sued the January 6th committee to block his subpoena, saying there was no legislative purpose. And the courts found that there was indeed a legislative, legitimate legislative purpose. And it's courts generally err on the side of a broad definition of legislative purpose, right? Even though you and I and everybody with a brain can sit here and think there's no purpose to this other than to interfere with and obstruct and, and you know, get sound bites and draw attention to. But it, it's pretty likely that the court will say, look, this, you know, this, we don't have to know specifically what legislation might come out of this. We don't, you know, we were arguing on it for the other side when we were trying to get Trump's tax returns, when we were trying to get the Mazar's accounting from the Oversight Committee, when we were trying to get uh, Don McGahn's testimony, you know, trying to say there is a legislative purpose here. And, you know, even if you don't feel like there is, we don't have to tell you specifically. We, you know, like the one six committee was like, we don't have to tell you that what we're trying to do is amend the Electoral Count Act, but that's our legislative purpose, if you really want to know. And the courts were like, we don't really care. Broad legislative purpose is broad, broad le- legislative purpose, and speech or debate clause covers these kinds of things. And I think that's why Pomerantz was included as a defendant, not just Jim Jordan and the committee, because I honestly don't think a court is going to rule. I mean, they might rule in favor of, you know, grand jury secrecy and and maybe not this judge, because this is a Trump-appointed judge. Uh, but, you know, if you take it up to this, this is New York, so what's that, Second Circuit, and you get you, you take it up on Bonk, you're going to get uh, the, the, a correct uh, ruling uh, from this panel. I'm not sure how SCOTUS would look at it. But, you know, out of concern of being granted broad legislative purpose for what Jim Jordan is doing, you want to put Pomerantz there in the defendant box uh, to and I'm sure that uh, well I don't know I don't know how well Pomerantz and Bragg get along these days, uh, but I'm sure I'm I'm assuming there was some sort of conference or discussions about him being placed as a defendant on this lawsuit, uh, pursuant to trying to block the subpoena of him and then also future subpoenas, and that's that where that second part comes in right based on all the privilege and grand jury secrecy stuff so. Yeah, I think there's definitely a re- smart of them to sort of belt and suspender with both the exceeding the committee's authority and then adding on the whole it would interrupt everything we're doing with the grand jury process and the prosecution process. And to the, I think I agree with you. I think legislative purpose is going to be very, very broadly defined, and I can see potentially Bragg losing on that. But to the second one, and, and particularly when you move up the appellate chain, you get to the Supreme Court. You know, all the sort of conservative. You know, originalist thinking about you know we the the state the primacy of the states and the states' rights to do things. This is at the core of that. This is a state trying to exercise their laws and the federal government interfering in that process. So to the extent that you start, you know, again, that's not going to stop you know some some ideologue in the Supreme Court from voting a different way than they traditionally might. But it does take aim directly at what the conservative majority of the Supreme Court is doing across the land, whether it's, you know, in in Dobbs or just case after case after case, where they're saying, no, 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 the supremacy of the states or the federal government, you know, placing considerable value in the state's ability to do something. And so Bragg in this lawsuit said, fine, this is, you know, setting setting aside this good argument about it being beyond their authority. There's a second argument that what we're trying to do and the core sort of one of the core jobs of the state to maintain law and order and, and execute the law and enforce the law, the federal government is getting in the way of us doing that. So it, it's, I think, a smart um, argument to make, a good argument to make, and, and we'll see how 
I'm curious, like you, I think, to see how far this goes down the appellate path before it resolves, whether or not it goes up to the Supreme Court or not. Well, and that works in our favor, too, um, you know, just politically speaking. I mean, if you, you know, you think about, I'll make a prediction, and I, you know, I, I like predictions. I know you don't like predictions, but I think that this, the requests made in this lawsuit will be granted in part and will be denied in part. It'll be granted that the Pomerantz can't be subpoenaed, nor can any line prosecutors or the DA, based on all those privilege issues and grand jury secrecy. Um, and uh, maybe there's a, a a carve out for certain documents that can be handed over, maybe as as it uh, you know with regard to the federal grants that were received that really didn't have anything to do with quote unquote funding the uh, investigation into Trump, maybe something like that. But uh, I you know I think that they will grant legislative purpose here, but you know you can't use legislative purpose to pierce those other privileges. So I, I think that's what'll happen. But if this judge rules in favor of Jim Jordan. And then it goes uh, an appeal on Bonk to the Second Circuit, and then that comes back, and then everybody gets to reply and then respond. And then that goes to the Supreme Court, and then maybe stays are asked for, um, or not, because we aren't trying to, you know, there's no setup for, for when this deposition or whatever of Pomerantz or whoever is subpoenaed would have to take place but perhaps a stay is granted. And then what we're doing is we're doing what Jim Jordan was doing to the January 6th committee, which is just running out the clock because Jim Jordan will not be in this committee past January of 2025. Um, or he might, uh, and but he'd have to reinstate the whole thing, right? Because the Congress has ended, just like when the January 6th committee wrapped up and they had to, you know, uh, withdraw all their cases, trying to get subpoenas of Salesforce for the e the fundraising emails or the Jim Jordan subpoena. And of course, you know, when they withdrew and, you know, uh, you know, self-dismissed those lawsuits trying to get Jim Jordan to testify, Jim Jordan did a victory lap. I win. I win. Uh, it was just really the clock running out on that. And that, you know, if we actually get an unfavorable ruling in the district court here, it will extend the amount of time it takes to get a final decision in this lawsuit. Uh, which could uh, work in favor of uh, running out the clock, which is, like I said, I think my rhyme to remember what to do if Jim Jordan subpoenas you, suit a block, run out the clock. <laughs> we're, we're at the suit a block phase right now. So somebody's listening. Somebody's listening. Uh, but anyway, that, those are my two cents. That's what I think will end up happening here. I, I don't see the court deciding that Jim Jordan doesn't have broad legislative purpose to have field hearings about crime and whatever he can he can do that shit uh, uh and it's you know i don't th i don't think it'll be considered obstruction of justice or anything like that um and because uh, he's shielded by speech or debate clause especially if you're doing it uh as a committee uh or a subcommittee of of congress which we saw in the scott perry um you know speech or debate arguments uh so that's the, that that's my two cents yeah, I think that's right. And that's part of the reason, you know, they went up there, they went to the Javits Federal Building, they had a little hearing. I mean, it was very much done in the context of congressional business. So, you know, there are no dummies that way. There's a lot of a it's lot not of like benefit. Rudy Giuliani's right, hearings just, at the Hill. Yeah, right, right. Showing up at the yeah, Four Seasons Total Landscaping <laughs> and, you know, Passaic or something <laughs> on the other side of them. But yeah, no, totally. <laughs> but on the and that if you thought that was, you know, and what kind of my last thought is 
none of this is going to happen quickly. I agree. We may run out the clock and get to trial beforehand, but keep in mind, I mean, this is like a case where they're estimating what, you know, the end of the year for, for any sort of like real status uh, updates and movements and then trial potentially next year. So as slow as district court appeal, en banc appeal, Supreme Court, as long as that may take, this trial wasn't heading to trial quickly anyway. So, you know, buckle in. It's not going to, nothing's going to be resolved anytime soon on this. Nope. Nope. It won't. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's what's going on with the Jim Jordan traveling circus. It is now a traveling circus. He's taken his show on the road, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, all right. We have a, a super juicy third segment, but we have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. On to the Fox News, Fox Corp, Dominion defamation case. Now, on the eve of the first day of trial, it was supposed to start Monday morning, a couple days ago, Judge Eric Davis postponed the trial for a day, saying we're going to start it Tuesday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time. This is Delaware court. And so that's yesterday, if you're listening to this, on Wednesday. Now, of course, a lot of uh, explosive headlines went out about there was a potential settlement in the works. Uh, but uh, Peters, the New York Times, talking to Nicole Wallace, uh, I love her show, by the way, was reminding us, look, settlement 
talks were have probably been going on for months and will probably continue to go on throughout the trial. So I think everyone was sort of connecting this one day delay to perhaps the judge or the parties asking for a day to maybe see if they could hammer out a last minute settlement agreement. But it's just come out, by the way, since between the time that I wrote this script and by the between the time that we're reading it to you, that uh, that New York Times reporter told Nicole Wallace uh, on Monday, they're my sources are waving me off. There's no settlement agreement here. Uh, trial will start tomorrow. The, the understanding I got from the judge and from sources is that it was the judge's decision to delay. And we still don't know why the delay happened. Um, there's no definitive answer there. The judge didn't doesn't have to tell us why the judge wanted to delay for a day. It could be that he wanted to see if they could give another day for talks to see if a settlement could come through before we started trial. It could be because maybe Rupert Murdoch got COVID. It could be because, I mean, who knows what it is? But um, uh, from what I understand, as we record this Monday, the trial starts tomorrow, Tuesday. We'll know more when you hear this episode on Wednesday. So forgive us if we've done a little time travel tricks on you. But um, from what I understand, by the time you hear this episode, the trial will be underway. And we might even be seeing Rupert Murdoch testify uh, because they want to bring him on to the stand uh, fairly early. So that's sort of what's going on. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, I was like, when the settlement, they're going to settle. I put out hashtag don't settle. Dear Dominion, don't settle. Uh, love America. Please, you know, go to trial, go to trial. While also understanding that settlements are oftentimes good things because they save a lot of money for both sides. But it also takes away the risks. Both sides have risks, don't they? They do. And I mean, I think what complicates this as well is the fact that, you know, Dominion was bought by a pretty large private equity firm, I want to say in 2018. I'm not sure when it was. So there is some, it's not like, you know, a privately owned company where the CEO is the founder and he's got no real incentive to settle because he believes in the moral righteousness of his cause. There is a financial incentive beyond a private company to settle here. But again, you know, the idea is that when you go, they're, they're looking at damages. I mean, I think that the strong likelihood is that Dominion is going to prevail in this lawsuit. I mean, none of us know for certain, but likely to prevail and likely to prevail and have a fairly large monetary award. But there's this, the intangible aspect, the, the legal the legal term for it is, is goodwill. The idea that when a company or an entity has an image, has a brand, has a reputation, that has a value to it, a tangible financial value. And so when that, and it's called goodwill. And so just the trial itself, setting aside whatever judgment comes, just all the information that's going to come out in trial. I mean, we've seen some, but we haven't seen all of the statements and the texts and the emails that inevitably are going to come out on the stand and be entered into evidence. So the damage to Fox isn't just going to come at the end of the day whenever the jury decides on a on an award. The damage to Fox is going to start pretty much as soon as probably that first witness takes the stand. And over the course of however many weeks it takes to introduce all this stuff, the reputation of Fox, the value, the the financial value of Fox are going to take a hit. So if you're Fox, it's really in your interest, if you're going to settle, to try and get that done before the very first witness takes the stand. Because after that, you start, you know, the, you hit a point of, of diminishing uh, value for a settlement. But you're right. We, we have no idea what's going on. I think most good judges are, you know, heavily encouraged parties to settle, to conserve court resources. And, you know, so 
it's interesting to me because my assumption was exactly like yours. Oh, their settlement is close, but you know, I saw the same report, and you know, it doesn't it doesn't look like that is it at all. But I think there's still a decent. Well, I don't. I shouldn't say decent. I think there's still a chance for settling up until we start having witnesses called, and after that, you know, we'll see. But uh, it's interesting. Yeah, especially like they're going to make their max offer before Rupert Murdoch hits the stand. But that happens pretty early on in this trial. So it, it seems a little weird to, because you can settle at the end of a trial. You can settle after the decision. You know, you can come to settlement terms whenever. Um, but like I, I, like you said, it it just wouldn't, it takes the incentive away from Fox to do that after, you know, the, the Rupert Murdoch gets up and uh, spills his guts. And speaking of Rupert Murdoch, this week <laughs> CNN reported that Abby Grossman, uh, that's the producer of uh, the the Bartiromo show, I think, has again amended her lawsuit, uh, alleging Fox News lawyers deleted messages from her phone. Now, previous <laughs> filings we know allege Fox lawyers coerced her testimony and, uh, allegedly and withheld uh, audio recordings of Rudy and Sidney Powell with Bartiromo before they went on the air. Um, the judge threatened to sanction Fox over that and even talked about appointing a special master. And that came after, and this t- takes me back to Rupert Murdoch, when we found out that Fox had been misrepresenting to the court and to the plaintiffs that Rupert Murdoch had nothing to do with Fox News. He was Fox Corp. But in fact, he was a CEO of Fox News Network as well. And after that misrepresentation, that's, I mean, the judge has been pretty uh, angry about a lot of things, but got real angry real fast and said, "You, I feel like you've been lying to me. You've misrepresented. Uh, and this is even after he knew that they had withheld some evidence from these audio recordings and, uh, and said, you know, we might have to have a special master look at this, but we aren't delaying the trial, uh, except, you know, except for this one day thing that he did at the last minute. But um, that's it, you know, and, and so a lot of a lot more is going to come out in the trial itself. Like you said, we have only seen the evidence that Fox News allowed us to see. Yeah. And this this goes this is not going to make the judge any happier in the slightest. I mean, he said, he said all those things said to the attorneys, to Fox's attorneys, I need to be able to trust what you're saying to me. And when you have a now, uh, a, again, amended complaint saying that the lawyers not only coerced her testimony, but then physically, uh, you know, potentially criminally obstructed by deleting evidence. I mean, that's a whole, that isn't just special master. I mean, it may go through a special master territory, but we're moving from the unethical into the illegal. I mean, allegedly, all these things are allegations. They're not proven. But, you know, it's one thing to say, well, that's sleazy behavior. It's another thing to say you destroyed evidence. So, you know, this is this is in, in seemingly taken a very serious turn. And depending on what was deleted and what was said and what can be proven, this is this is moving beyond bar complaint territory into potential, you know, criminal investigative territory. So, well, again, stay tuned. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But d- deletion and destruction of evidence is is not there. There's no good way to spin that at all. That's what Martha so, Stewart did. Yeah, and and <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> and uh, I was gonna say, look at what it got her. But it got her apparently a really nice, lucrative, you know, sweet house in the Hamptons, and you know, and show working with Snoop Dogg on branding everything from <laughs> edibles to God knows what. So she's brilliant. She's she knows brilliant. how to bounce back. Brilliant. She knows yeah. how to bounce back. But yeah, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. That's against the law. No matter how cool you are, no matter how delicious your turkey recipe is, you cannot delete evidence. Um, now, I I wanted to 
talk a little bit about the settlement, if there is a settlement. Uh, I read uh, uh, from uh, some legal experts that because I don't, I think it's maybe because it's a defamation suit that, or maybe because Fox is publicly traded. I'm not sure why, but from my understanding, a settlement amount cannot be kept secret if a settlement is reached. So if there is a settlement, uh, and I'll, I'll, look that up to see. I know it was a lawyer who was talking about it, uh, and it's been publicly reported, but for the reason why, I'll have to look that up. But my understanding is that the, the amount that is, if they settle, cannot be, because you know, a lot of settlements are like for an undisclosed amount, but not not here. Interesting. And I know it w- what's also will be interesting to me, there is one shareholder, Fox Corporation shareholder who sued Rupert Murdoch for his election lies or their election lies for over $4 billion as a uh, derivative action. But I don't know, we'd have to talk to find some some class action plaintiff's attorney if there's a sequencing thing. In other words, if this primary lawsuit results in a guilty verdict and a finding that Fox did in fact defame and knowingly did all these things, does that then allow individual stockholders, classes of stockholders to our shareholders to come in and say, you know, this has been found, therefore we are bringing a suit, you know, whether or not they need to wait for a judicial decision or not. I mean, that's a, that's a finer point of the law that I don't know, but I think this is- I don't think so because the lawsuit came right after the finding of summary judgment for falsity. Yeah, fair. And I don't know that, and that may be enough. And I don't it. know, again, like, the, does it help you as a plaintiff if you have the, the finding of falsity or does it, is it even stronger if you have falsity on top of a, you know, a, a, a defamatory purpose in that falsity or, or, or pushing yeah. out those lies? So I don't know if one, if there's a level of negligence or bad behavior that allows you to recoup more money or a greater certainty of recouping money through the lawsuit. So, but bottom line, you know, there's this one, but I do, I expect there to be more. And so, you know, Fox's financial troubles from this are are much greater than just this lawsuit. Right. There's still a $2.6 billion defamation from Smartmatic uh, out there floating around that we haven't even gotten to yet. Um, Haven't even gotten to, I don't think, Discovery. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what I sort of figured. I tied it to the falsity. And what, basically what I'm saying is, is, is if I could explain it a little bit, um, the, that Dominion filed for summary judgment in a defamation case is unheard of. Uh, and the judge said, well, for actual malice, we are going to have to co- go to court. But I do find summary judgment in favor of Dominion on falsity, meaning I have determined, uh, and I am ruling, this isn't like a crime fraud exception judge who said probably more likely than not this has happened. This is, I am ruling, the decision is that the, what Fox News said are lies. And uh, we don't have to prove that in the defamation trial anymore. So I'm partially granting your summary judgment. And when that ruling of falsity came out, this shareholder, one guy named Schwartz, was like, well, I'm going to sue then because you, this is a derivatives, like you said, a derivative suit that you... Uh, skirted your fiduciary responsibility to the stockholders like me, a shareholder in the Fox Corp and Fox News Network. Uh, and and so, again, like you said, maybe falsity is enough to go on. Maybe falsity triggered it or maybe just the disposition of the case or potential settlement talks or that uh, Dominion might be more likely to prevail than not. But I, f- I feel like the falsity helps, but I, like you said, I think a, a ruling on actual malice would also help kick that into 
help would help that uh, lawsuit as well. So yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. yeah. All right, we have other news to get to, but uh, boy, I, I'm so jealous of people listening to this right now because they already know sort of what's going on in the trial while we're sitting here with it hasn't happened yet. So that time travel thing is weird. Let's do a little lightning round because our friend Pete Pete <laughs> Navarro has been ordered again to hand over all of his presidential records pursuant to a lawsuit the Department of Justice filed saying, hey, you've got all these Proton Mail uh, emails on your personal account, uh, which we know the Republicans love, uh, that, uh, you know, when you were COVID advisor, you know, pushing for ivermectin and pushing for injecting bleach or whatever the fuck, uh, and you have to give those over. And, and Pete's been fighting this tooth and nail uh, on some weird Fifth Amendment ground, saying if I hand this over, that proves that I broke the Electoral Count Act law. Yeah, give, I, I robbed the bank. Give give me if I give you the money back, it will prove to you that I robbed the bank. So I'm not under the Fifth Amendment. I can keep the money. <laughs> but if they were going to indict him on violating the Electoral Count Act, they would have done that. They wouldn't have sued him civilly to get this shit back. I personally don't think. But I don't know. I don't know what they have in store for Pete. Maybe they get the stuff and they see something in there that they didn't know existed, but I doubt it because I'm pretty sure that every single email they want, everybody knows about and has read. Uh, so because I think they had to do a review, right, of, of, of what was considered a presidential record. I'm not sure, but uh, he was ordered to hand him back last Friday. And I haven't seen an update on whether or not he handed everything over on Friday, April, what, April 14th? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, but he was supposed to. So if he didn't, I'm assuming we'll see some other filing here pretty soon. But I, I've looked on the docket. I haven't seen one. Yeah, I assume he did because the judge, um, Judge Kolar Catelli in DC District Court ruled quickly as she came back in on Wednesday, I think, and said, nope, uh, your your motion is denied. And by the way, and it was like Wednesday at 4.50 or something in the afternoon and said, and by Friday, you turn these all over, period. So she, she in her timeline, she was about done with Navarro's nonsense. And so I would think the given appellate the- appellate court um, ruled. Right, right. Right. The appellate her, court. Because right, really, he asked right. for emergency stay. Like, no, right. And then she came it. back and said, right. And this was her, and I think it was asked. her timetable, I think, after the appellate court- It was, yeah. Because the appellate court, court's right, like, they like no, it back you down. can't keep it and there's no stay. Right. And, and she said, okay, since there's no stay- Right. You got to turn it over by Friday. And so my belief would be given that sort of expedited timetable, had he not turned it over, I would have expected to see uh, some filing coming out of DOJ. And the fact that we haven't seen it leads me to believe that he has turned those over. Again, a couple, I think, you know, 150, 200 is the, are the numbers I've heard. So a substantial amount of material that he has been fighting very hard not to turn over. <laughs> material he believes inculpates him. So- you know, good stuff for DOJ. Yeah, good stuff. Dude, we would have indicted you. And, you know, we and, already and did on the contempt thing, and you're probably in a bunch of trouble on the fraudulent elector thing, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and so... Go ahead. I get, oh, no, I was going to say, moving up back to uh, New York City, Yeah. <laughs> Donald went up and gave seven hours of deposition in the New York Attorney General case, and he didn't take the fifth, which is, you know, interesting based on, the, you know, his pattern of behavior in the past, but... You know, unlike the circus that, you know, as the judge noted, he played no small part in creating when he went up for his arraignment, this was comparatively quiet, but it stands, you know, it stands, it's worth noting that's a full day. I mean, that's a full depot uh, providing information. And again, my assumption is that he didn't, he either felt that the the harm by taking the fifth was outweighed by, you know, the negative inference that might have been drawn by doing so. But, you know, he spent the, he spent the whole day answering questions. 
Yeah. And of course, that stuff can be used against him in any potential future criminal case brought by Alvin Bragg for tax fraud Um, and, and, you know, asset valuation, which is still an open and ongoing investigation, not only in Manhattan at the district attorney's office, but at Mimi Roca's Westchester DA's office. Yeah. Because she has seven Springs estates there. And uh, I think it's I think it's interesting that, um, yeah, it was quieter, right? He didn't uh, he didn't say, oh, I'm going to you know be arrested or whatever. But he did put out a truth social post saying the racist attorney general peekaboo, Tish peekaboo James, I think is his nickname. Oh, I can't I, I can't tell if that's parody or not. Uh, but he basically said, my company is worth a lot, uh, but it's worth more than it is on paper. Uh, than it is on those financial statements. So he basically just admitted that he inflated his uh, right, value. That he's playing games with the valuations. Right, right. <laughs> just a- unbelievable. And I have a hope still there's a glimmer, there's the smallest spark deep down in an almost extinguished ember in the bottom of my heart <laughs> that Tish James's referral to SDNY and the IRS and DOJ that somewhere there's a federal investigation looking at tax fraud on the part of the, the Trump big. I uh, think there list. is. And here's my little indication why, right? Finally, in November, just this past November, we finally got rid of Charles Reddick, who was the IRS commissioner appointed by Trump, who owns several Trump properties and benefits greatly from the Trump property. In now. Hawaii. No no biggie. In Hawaii. Who among us? You know, I know I've got my properties in Scotland and the Trump golf course. Yeah. <laughs> so he was finally replaced at the end of last year. So I think maybe after the first of the year, uh, if the IRS was not investigating, I think they might be now. Uh, I hope so, because the word federal appeared over 25 times in uh, some of these New York Attorney General filings and, and the DA uh, indictment of the Trump organization. Federal, federal, federal. It was over and over and over again. So uh, I hope they I hope they are and I hope they do. We haven't heard about the SDNY looking into any of this, um, but I don't know. We'll see. Um they didn't, you know, they they shut down the Cohen investigation and perhaps those the SDNY under Barr and Berman shut down a, a tax fraud investigation that was happening and perhaps not just shut it down, but precluded it from being reopened by making a prosecutorial discretion decision, which makes it a lot harder to just reopen a case, right? Kind of like Barr did with the obstruction charges that could have been brought out of the Mueller investigation in that weird memo he had the PayDag write up and the OLC write up for him with a bunch of bullshit saying, uh, even if he wasn't president, uh, obstruction of justice didn't happen, first of all, because the executive can't obstruct justice because he is justice. And second of all, because you have to commit and be convicted of an underlying crime in order to obstruct just a bunch of bullshit, but used his his broad prosecutorial discretion to say we declined to bring charges even if we could which makes it a real hard to reopen. Yeah, I hope they didn't do that. And my my hope is based in part on the fact that, you know, Berman's written a book. There have been a lot of discussion even outside of people's novels about what did and didn't happen in terms of cases that were shut down or encouraged. And this never came up in the context of, oh, something we were about to bring and Seth Ducharme showed up and made us, yeah. you know, close everything. So the fact that nobody, there's been no statement from anybody with the slightest bit of upset or outrage that this was done gives me some hope that 
you know, it wasn't shut down. I think it's much more, in my opinion, much more likely they just didn't ever open it because it's hard it. and it's complicated mm-hmm. and it's just too, you know, too big to or investigate. Or because it might have gotten shut down. I, I, I feel yeah. like a lot of cases could have been put on hold to till after the 2020 election. Maybe. Uh, you know, I, I that's a weird yeah. thing to do, but, you know, if, if you're between a... a dildo shop in a crematorium uh, then you know maybe that's what you have to do to make sure having, yeah having never been there i can't <laughs> it's, it's where the four seasons landscaping is man. Yeah. um and also by the way with the new york attorney general's case tish james won her subpoena battle with whitley penn which is a trump accountant so whitley penn has agreed to respond to the new york attorney general tish james's subpoena there and then we've got two other stories uh tashira Uh, The 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman uh, has been arrested and charged with espionage. We talked a little bit about him uh, on the bonus episode this weekend, but he was uh, arrested and brought in. So that's happening. A lot of people are like, why why did it only take a couple of weeks to get him, but Trump is still walking free? Uh, There's a lot of other considerations in the Trump case, including obstruction, uh, and uh, executive privilege and the special master battle and uh, delay, delay, delay uh, that 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 are going into this uh, documents case with Donald Trump versus this uh, 21-year-old who just snagged a bunch of shit, printed it out, took pictures and put it on a Discord server. Uh, so it's a little less complicated. Yeah. And he's, I mean, a couple of things I was thinking about is one, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, he's only 21. How did he have access to such, you know, cloudy classified information? Look, the fact of the matter is there are a ton of 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds with access to the same sort of information. There is a, I I think one of the things that I hope we'll see is the sort of um, share by default that came about as a result of the post 9-11 Intel reforms we'll start seeing really highly classified information being compartmented a little bit more. And then the other thing is that, you know, some of the systems that are in place, he not only was, you know, he initially started by copying things he saw on his computer screen, but then moved to printing it out. Well, there should be some mechanism in this day and age where most people consume their information by looking at a browser on a screen. If somebody's routinely printing, there ought to be mechanisms in place, automated algorithms that flag that activity. So I would hope it's too bad that it didn't catch it this time. I would hope there'd be some reforms. Uh, you know, I said during the bonus episode, and I'll say it again here, I'm surprised we have not seen this earlier and more often, uh, but I think some some greater restrictions are in order. And I think some of the risks that we felt post 9-11 have uh, gone down, certainly in comparison to the risks which have gone up through disclosure. But this idea that, oh, he's 21, it's impossible <laughs> to think that he had access. No, it's completely possible. I, I was mean, 20 look, when we, I had a TSSCI we, and I was a dumbass yeah, when I we, was 20. We have 18, 19, 21-year-olds in missile silos, on airplanes, in submarines, working in the context of a weapon system designed to deliver nuclear weapons. That's who joins the military. Sorry to tell you, but all these 30-year-olds aren't signing up for the army these days. Who are sitting at downlink stations, getting all the most exquisite signals, intelligence downlinks that you can imagine. It is this idea that, oh, only 21. How could he get all this? Come on. It it is not- My dad was working in the missile silos at Kunia and and Cheyenne Mountain, which is now NORAD, when he was 19, 18, 19, 20. Uh, with uh, he was he was building communication stations to intercept Russian messages, decrypt them, decode them, send them to Clark Air Force Base. Uh, I mean, he was a cryptotech, Air Force intelligence. He was a baby. He was a dumbass. We were. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. but that's who joins the military. I'm sorry to tell you, but me and my cohort of, ni- of 18 to 21 year olds were running nuclear reactors on submarines and aircraft carriers. That's who does that shit. Uh, so yeah. anyway. And I think this kid, I mean, he'll be, he, he made his initial appearance in Boston. I think the case is going to be at EDVA that, you know, known as the rocket docket. I expect very quickly. I would be surprised if he doesn't get a good public defender and move very quickly to a plea agreement with the government. So I would expect some resolution on this. Certainly. I mean, we might see a resolution. (laughs) I hate to say it. We might see a resolution on this before we see any charges out of Jack Smith. But, you know, well, my guess is he pleads out and gets somewhere again. I'm not going to speculate. I hate to speculate. I'm not going to speculate. I know. I know. And Three to five years, maybe? Depends on Yeah, I think that's probably right. I would hope uh, in the mid-range there. Again, we don't, but the danger of making predictions is we don't know. We we all think we know the totality of what he did and that it was this, you know, few hundred that a select number of news outlets have seen that got stuck in the Discord server. But we don't know. Is that the entire universe? We don't know. Did he think that they're actually... Ukrainian or foreign, you know, military or government people in the Discord server. So- well, that Donbass uh, account lady, right? That's former U.S. Navy uh, non-commissioned right. officer chief. Up until like an E7, like two, three years ago was, with a clearance holder. Has been found to perhaps have doctored some of these documents, uh, pro-Russian, anti-Ukrainian. Uh, been spreading propaganda for several years on on the internet. Uh, and and whether she was actually connected to him or just got him off the server and ran with it. I mean, it, there's so much that we don't, there's so much we don't know. But anyway, that, and then what's our, our final story here? Oh, this is right up your alley. 40 PRC nationals charged in the Eastern District of New York, man. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. I think it's actually up to 44. And two of those, my understanding, and, and some, the initial reporting on CNN got the numbers wrong. I think it's 44 from what I saw in three separate complaints. Two were here in the United States and were arrested and were charged in the two of their case with essentially running a secret PRC police department, like staffed and and doing the doing the bidding of the, the Ministry of Public Security, the sort of national police force of the PRC within the United States, and were supported, the bulk of them, the other 42, uh, were most, if not all of the other ones in the PRC sort of supporting and directing this activity. But it just, you know, what, what's scary about what's what's just uh, not scary, but just insulting about it was the absolute attack on the sovereignty of the United States. And it's not just here. The New York Times had an article a few months ago talking about, you know, they are doing, they're, they're creating, the PRC government is creating these secret police stations all around the world, all across Western Europe with the primary goal of, you know, finding dissenters and either quashing dissent and or bringing people essentially causing, rendering them back to China all under, in an undeclared way without telling anybody in the United States government or the Luxembourg government or the Italian government or all these places. I forget the the nations where they were, uh, the New York Times reported where they were overseas. But this is just an affront to any idea of sovereignty. I mean, when you come in, like into the United States, every nation sits and goes to the State Department and says, okay, we have our embassy here in Washington, D.C. Here are the diplomats. You know, you present, literally, it's called presenting their papers. You come in and whoever that diplomat is, they they present their papers to the State Department. The State Department accredits them as a diplomat, whether they're at the embassy here in Washington, D.C., whether they're at the missions of the United Nations, the consulate in New York, you know, consulate in L.A., wherever it may be. But it's a very formal process that every nation honors and adheres to with each other. We do the same thing when, you know, some deputy chief of mission or, you know, State Department attache shows up in Beijing. There's that same reciprocal process. 
So the idea that you're creating like a completely off the books office, not only on the part of the government, but representing like a law enforcement entity that is coercing mm -hmm. people to either shut up and or drag them back to China is is kind of an extraordinary event. And I'm I'm glad to see DOJ taking a strong stand. Again, you know, 44 people is a lot of people, um, but it's outrageous behavior and it's not limited to the United States. Yeah. And the Hark Herald Press tweeted out in September of 2022 that the Changli Association in New York City, an alleged United Front organization, opened a CCP police service station inside. The station extends CCP's influence in the U.S. And James Love retweeted it, saying, why has China been permitted to open a police service station in New York City? And this is last year, right? So it looks like um, this got wrapped up and rolled up pretty quick. Yeah, there was like there was reporting. I think it was in late last year, if memory serves. There again, it was this one of a couple New York Times article that the FBI had served, had executed a search warrant at that spot, and it was in Chinatown in, in Lower Manhattan, if I recall correctly. But there was at least at the time that it hit the New York Times, whatever the FBI was doing had advanced to the stage that they had obtained search warrants. Now, whether they were criminal search warrants, or FISA search warrants, I don't know, but they were overt search warrants. Uh, and we're we're in there collecting evidence. So again, you know, to get to that point, you have to have probable cause either that there's evidence of crime for a criminal warrant. Yeah, who knows how long they were investigating right. them before it's, that? Before point. that, right, right. But I'm glad I'm glad to see it, and you know, it's about time because you know they're they're fox hunt the this which is the the PRC's program to find whether it is people wanted for public corruption, whether it is dissidents, whether it is just somebody for whatever reason who has angered the regime in China going out and causing those people to come back to China is a is a global phenomenon. It just is skirting any sort of the, you know, in in many cases is going after people who enjoy lawful permanent residency or, you know, some sort of status, whether, you know, permanent permanent resident aliens, whether or not they have a uh, you know, naturalization underway or not, you know, they've got rights and that China does not care in this activity. Um so I'm glad. I'm glad to see this action by DOJ. Yeah, me too. All right. That is our show. It's so much news <laughs> to cover today. We're glad you stayed with us uh, for the whole hour. Thanks again to our patrons. We appreciate you. We'll be back this weekend with our secret, super, uh, super secret bonus unedited episode with me and Pete. That's if you're at the $2 level, then that episode, that second episode is free. So you get twice as many episodes for two bucks. Per, uh, per episode and uh, you don't have to pay for those bonus ones so that's always very cool um, I uh, it's I think it's just going to get busier and busier my friend um, as time goes on so uh, I I look forward to sitting here with you looking at you on zoom next week and being like holy shit check out what happened this week it's <laughs> every week it's the same thing yeah, and Fonnie Willis is still, we didn't talk about her today. She's still out there, still moving mm -hmm. along. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Anna Bauer on Twitter, by the way, is very cool. She's going through and she's looking at the two current uh, grand juries in Fulton County that are working. And every day they put out indictments that aren't related to Trump. Uh, she assumes is a day that they aren't hearing the Trump case. Uh, and a lot of people have speculated and she'll, she'll do this. She has a thread, Anna Bauer, every day she says, well, we got 26 indictments today. None of them are Trump related, which indicates that they aren't hearing the Trump case and that they would probably go dark. One of the grand juries would probably go dark for a couple of days without any other indictments and other cases that aren't Trump related if, that, if and when they hear that Trump case. 
and that it's been speculated that she's waiting, Fonnie Willis is waiting to the end of this particular uh, grand jury period, which is the first week in May, so that they can vote and then go home so they aren't at risk uh, like all these other juries and grand juries have been, uh, you know, from Trump supporters and and MAGA people. Uh, And so that's all, again, speculation, but... That's and then, of course, there could be where, you know, maybe she's hanging on until the DOJ goes. I don't know. But uh, we'll see. We'll know more. Uh, We'll definitely know more the first week of May uh, when uh, that new grand jury is sworn in. Yeah, I think that's that's a critical point, right? Because if you're right, it it may. I mean, that's a turning point. Can you get what you need before then? If there's any still sort of work going on or any question about it, it's not going to happen until then. So, But again, beginning of May is. Two weeks away. We're we're past <laughs> mid-April. I mean, time is, is zipping along. So, Yeah, January 24th was imminent. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. And our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content.
Subscribe now.